Welcome to the Innovation Lab, and thank you for listening. The purpose of the Innovation Lab podcast is to engage in conversation with educators who have experienced teaching in a distance learning paradigm, who are in the trenches, so to speak, applying theory, testing new ideas, and problem solving as they confront both the opportunities and the challenges that come with working with real human beings, with our students, in an online environment. These are candid, unvarnished conversations with the primary aim of bringing listeners together in a shared experience, sparking creative thinking, and generating more conversation. A quick disclaimer. The Innovation Lab is a grassroots project that I've started to connect our community to the experience, wisdom, and creativity of fellow educators, both on and in the world beyond our campus, during this time of great upheaval, challenge, and change to our fundamental teaching and learning paradigms. The views expressed are my own and those of my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of my institution or theirs. In today's conversation, I'll be talking with Kari Woods. Kari is the chair of the History and Social Sciences Department at the Bishop's School in La Jolla, California. She has taught a range of courses since joining Bishop's in 2007, including psychology, global issues, history, and English. In 2015, Kari collaborated in developing, and since that time has taught, an elective course called Gender and Society for Global Online Academy. In 2018, Kari was named the Michael W. Teitelman Endowed Chair of History. My conversation with Kari was fascinating. There was so much to talk about. As a result, I have split the conversation into two parts. Today's episode is part one of that conversation. You'll notice that today's stopping point occurs just as we begin to dive into the fascinating idea of the different pedagogical cultures that emerge when working with students in a traditional classroom setting and when working remotely. Because I know that this will create a bit of a cliffhanger, I will release part two of our conversation earlier than normal. You can watch for it next week. Here's part one of my conversation with Kari. Hi, Kari. Hi, Ian. Hi. We're here talking today with Kari Woods, who is, of course, one of our colleagues at the Bishop School. But I'm going to let Kari introduce herself a little bit because I know there are probably quite a number of new faculty who will be listening to this who haven't had a chance to meet Kari yet. So, Kari, tell us a little bit about your experience at the Bishop School, your role there, and and uh, what you're doing now with respect to distance learning. Sure. Uh, so, I am a uh, psychology history and um, global issues teacher at the Bishop School. Uh, I've been there since 2007, so I, I believe I'm starting my 13th year. Um, it's been a total joy to work at Bishops, and I'm excited for more to come. Uh, I'm currently the department chair of the History and Social Sciences Department, and um, I also teach for Global Online Academy. Uh, I teach a gender studies course, which um, this coming year I won't be teaching, uh, just got a little too much on my plate, but uh, for the last five years I've been working for them. And, um, and this year I'm going to be stepping into a site director role at Bishops for GOA, which is essentially someone who um, acts as sort of the, the face-to-face presence uh, or, or the main point person between GOA and its faculty and Bishops and its students and faculty. Yeah, when you say you 
just had a little bit too much on your plate. I think <laughs> that's what we call understatement, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, it was a hard, yeah, it was a hard conversation, but uh, awesome. even GOA was like, I think, I think maybe you should take a little break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, can you tell us what GOA is? Not sure. Familiar with that. So Global Online Academy um, is a, uh, let's see, it's an organization that um, works with a bunch of member schools. It's grown substantially in the last few years, but it started off as um, an organization that helps independent school teachers for member schools design um, online courses that would then be available to those independent member school students. Um, so for example, when I taught uh, gender studies, I would usually have students from anywhere from five to 15 schools, um, all within our member school network. And at the, for most of my time at GOA, they uh, were all independent schools. Um, but GOA has since expanded. They've incorporated um, uh, several international schools. And I think in their long-term plan, they are planning to integrate um, public schools as well, at least in their professional development side of their business. Um, but at least, at least for now, I believe it's the member schools are still independent and international schools. You know, it's funny, as we're talking, um, one of the things that's going through my mind are all of the things that I've learned over the summer about watching how to do uh, how to do videos for distance learning purposes. And um, uh, one of the suggestions is try to make your space as quiet uh, as you can, because there are all these things that come up while you're, and uh, so I just noticed that, I, I hope you can't hear the, the um, lower in the background. But that's, oh no. Okay, good, good. I don't hear it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so, okay, so that is a, a great introduction to what, because we'll use the acronym GOA quite often, I probably in the course of our conversation. And so that's really helpful. Um, there are a couple of other terms that we'll use um, as we're talking. One of them, of course, is distance learning. Um, and I think that we've run into this kind of um, uh, learning format word soup uh, over the last handful of months, uh, distance uh, learning, hybrid learning, um, uh, F2F, you know, face-to-face, -face, you know, all of these different, these different terms. Um, some of them I found are actually um, difficult to differentiate from one another. There are a couple of different variations on hybrid learning, for example. And um, of course, one of the challenges, I think, um, of the the time that we're that we're working through is that what we're proposing to do right now uh, at Bishops, when and if we can go back to face-to-face -face teaching, we're calling it hybrid, but it's actually a, a very um, distinctive version of hybrid, right? Because yes. uh, you'll have students that are present in class, students that are uh, at home, and the course is not designed specifically for students being in class or students being at home. And most of the time when we talk about hybrid, um, the same group of students is sometimes in class and sometimes at home, but we're talking about doing something altogether different. Yes. So, yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking specifically about distance learning in particular. And one of the reasons for that is the third thing I wanted to make sure is clear um, is this phrase that um, at least I'll use from time to time called designing for distance. And what um, that um, means is that um, uh, I think you're going to be sharing with us a lot of a lot of your experience with designing a course to be conducted with students 
at a distance uh, online. Um, and that there's a, that, that is, I think, the most important and significant model for us to consider mm -hmm. as we think about how to offer a bishop's education uh, um, with the level of quality and consistency that we are accustomed to uh, moving forward with the semester. So definitions out of the way, hopefully that's clear. Um, and I am really curious about something. When you started teaching with GOA, when you had to design your first distance learning course, you'd been a classroom teacher for some time. Yes. Training had been for a classroom teaching. You'd been doing classroom teaching. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience designing a distance learning class for the first time? What did you run into? What was that like? Sure. Uh, it was, it was a major growth point for me. Um, the reason I I looked into teaching for GOA was because I took a, a leave of absence for, for one year um, from 2015 to 16 to live in Germany uh, with my husband. And um, so during that time, I wanted to stay connected to teaching and I wanted to use uh, that year to, to sort of wade into something that I was initially uncomfortable with. I um, often joke around with GOA, my GOA uh, staff friends, that when we first learned, um, I think it was in 2012 or 13, that Bishops was joining as a member school, I was, I was actually sort of disappointed by that. Um, I was pretty skeptical of the online learning uh, movement and, and just wasn't sure how that could be anywhere close to as, as valuable as, as what we do in person. Um, and so in conversations, in conversations with Benny, we decided, why don't you just go ahead and <laughs> give it a try? Uh, it will keep you connected, it'll keep you in shape for when you come back um, the following year. So I did. And right away, my sort of my conception of what online learning was, um, which was, you know, I, I'm just thinking back to some little courses that I took maybe to get a, a certificate or something that were, they just felt very, like I felt like I was by myself, just working through modules doing some rote work. Um, and that was not at all what GOA was, was offering. Um, they were very committed to designing a robust online experience that um, foster relationships between teachers and their students and um, tried to leverage the opportunity that they had, which is, you know, you have, a, you have classes with students from not only multiple schools, but they're, they're also living in multiple countries. Um, especially with the, the international schools involved. And so how do, we, how do we create experiences that are truly unique in the setting that cannot be uh, recreated in, in a face-to-face -face classroom at one particular school in one particular community? And so um, through that, kind of through that lens, I started to get really excited about it. Um, for new teachers, GOA has a camp up in Seattle uh, that you go to. Um, I don't. I think they do something a little bit different now, but at the time it was a it was a camp um, up in Bainbridge uh, near Seattle, and we we stayed there for several days, and just worked on designing online experiences that were really rich, and kind of got into the the whys and hows, um, played around with tech tools, and worked with other teachers who were also kind of trying to figure out what this is going to look like in their particular course, um, and we're all sort of designing for different, very different subject matters. So we had language teachers. I was teaching um, a social studies class, essentially gender studies. Um, we had math teachers, science teachers, and just sort of figuring out what that looks like for our discipline. And also 
having to contend with the fact that it's not going to look the same um, as our face-to-face -face classes. So assessing is going to look different. Um, you know, how you interact with kids and how do you, how you build relationships with kids is going to be different. So um, that process was, was quite fun and quite challenging. One of the, the first struggles I had was how do I know if students are, are getting what we're talking, like, how do, how do I know if they're getting it? Um, <laughs> and, and so, and, and which kind of gets into the larger question of how do we assess in this course? Uh, it was pretty clear that giving tests and, and quizzes um, for a score that would count for a lot of their grade just wasn't a great use of, of time or energy. Um, and so we started playing, I had a partner teacher luckily um, based in Kansas City, who's fantastic and amazing and had already started to build this course. Um, and so we played around with different assessment ideas. Uh, how do you get kids to have conversations um, when they're not in the same time zone? Uh, we had to contend with the fact that our, like our class of, our, our, I think each of us had about 16 or 17 students and they would never be on the same call at the same time ever um, in our courses because there was maybe 10 time zones involved. So uh, it, was, it was a puzzle, but as we started to put it together with sort of the coaching that GOA provided, um, it, was, it was very cool to, to figure out what that could look like and to start to appreciate certain components of that online experience that are actually hard to replicate in a classroom. That's so interesting that there are components of an online experience that are hard mm -hmm. to replicate in the classroom because so much of our conversation is about how do I replicate what's going on right. in the classroom um, online. What are some examples of the kinds of things that, because it's such a curious idea, what are the examples of things that you can do online that you have a difficult time replicating in a classroom environment? Yeah, so a couple of things come to mind, um, specifically with the, with the sort of caveat that I have students coming from multiple countries, multiple states, uh, which is really a, an amazing opportunity. So we would, for example, I, we taught gender studies. So one, one idea, and this is a very small activity that my partner teacher came up with, which is great. Um, it was a gender binary scavenger hunt and so we asked students to snap photos um, around town of places where they saw the gender binary sort of like coming out in either an advertisement or being reinforced in some way uh, so for example some students would go to their local drugstore and take pictures of pink razors versus blue razors um, and then other students maybe living in um, Jordan, for example, wouldn't have that example, but they would have something else that they saw. Uh, and so when students would come and then share this on our, in our online forums, um, the other, that was very intrinsically motivating to the other students. So it wasn't just like they sent it to me as a teacher and like, okay, I did the task, <laughs> but it was, it was then shared with, with their peers and then discussions ensued kind of that tied in different texts that we were looking at. Um, and I think for many, it was really fascinating to, to see what that might look like in a mall in Hong Kong or what that might look like uh, in yeah. Connecticut. Um, and then ways in which that there were parallels and ways in which uh, there were some diversions depending on um, 
where someone was located and the culture in which they were sort of operating. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for, for students, there was a lot of intrinsic value to that. And it was also a way to build community. So we were, we were exploring content and exploring concepts, but we were also getting to know sort of the group and where everyone was located and getting a better feel for sort of where, what they could offer as insight, not just what the text could offer as insight. Mm -hmm. um, and also just sort of seeing gender dynamics all around them uh, mm -hmm. and becoming more critical. That's, that's something our students often um, express gratitude for by the end of the class is that we, not only are they seeing it in their own communities, but they're also, they feel like they, they get this window into their, their peers' communities, even if they've never been there. Um, Another example would be uh, interviewing. We have we do different projects, and oftentimes they involve interviewing community members. Um, and I think that also is a really really powerful for students to kind of garner up the courage to go and talk to adults about uh, gender related concepts, um, and 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 then bringing it back again that component of bringing it back to the group. And, and then we do something with it, tying it back to the concepts that we're exploring and the text that we're looking at. Mm. Um, and, and I think, again, they feel like they're very much a part of the learning experience mm -hmm. uh, and the learning experience of their peers. Mm. Um, it's not just looking at what we came up with, with um, for them and they have that as a baseline, but then they also bring in their own things. They'll, they'll share articles that they have from their local newspaper. Or they'll, mm -hmm. um, yeah, take photos, show things that they see on Instagram. Uh, and it's, it's pretty cool because there's, again, I, I think there's a certain curiosity that comes with that. Like, wow, oh, I, I have a classmate who's living here and here and here and here. And we're all sort of seeing, these things, but they look a little bit differently depending on where they're at. It seems to me like so several different things come to mind as, as I listen to mm -hmm. you describing those examples. One of them is um, it seems to me that um, that the way that you think about about time uh, and your students' time mm -hmm. must be very different, right? We we yes. we've all, we all now know these terms synchronous versus asynchronous. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the principles that GOA talks about is um, stop thinking about, uh, you have to stop thinking about classroom time and homework time, but rather yeah. think about total time, right? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about your, the way that you think about time in, in the context of these courses? Yes, I would say the time portion, I, I, think, I, I think in, in any classroom, format, uh, figuring out how time translates to the actual students um, is a challenge. But for me, that was especially challenging. Uh, my first year, especially because I, I just, I was also having to unlearn some of those ideas of like, well, what's the homework? And like, when are they in class? <laughs> because a lot of them are, some of them have periods in their, in their school schedules that are set aside for GOE work, but not necessarily. And so many of them are having to carve out their own space and create their own schedules. Um, so yeah, we had to think about, we had to slowly learn a, how much time everything takes, but also um, create our weeks or yeah, we would usually kind of unveil a week at a time 
and there'd be a series of tasks that they would need to do and there'd be days when they needed to be done by certain days but some students would work ahead some students uh would wait till the last minute some were right on time um but there was there was more of a sense of there wasn't like here's your homework for tonight it's mm. here's all the things that we're going to do this week mm -hmm. um we usually had one or two bigger discussions sometimes they were synchronous and we would put students in groups of three and they, they would arrange on their own um, mm -hmm. to get together and have those calls and then reflect on it in writing or, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it would be a slower asynchronous conversation. So we would say, keep coming back to this conversation um, Monday through you know, once, once on Wednesday, once on Thursday, once on Friday. And again, that's your time. So for our students in Asia, they'd be way ahead. Mm -hmm. um, and our students uh, in Hawaii would be last asked um, to get to these conversations mm -hmm. and, and sort of, again, not thinking of it as homework, but these are the points in which points in the week in which you're going to engage. Mm -hmm. And there is some prep to in order that you need to do in order to engage, like read this thing or listen to this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, we never used the terms homework or classwork. Mm -hmm. And even when Bishops was transitioning, that was something I brought up a lot when we were kind of like, what are, what do we, how do we kind of coach people through this transition? Um, I, I would bring up that idea of total time and, and like, what is the, instead of 90 minutes for homework uh, for an advanced class, like what is the total time that a, that a student can expect to do work over, throughout a cycle? I think that's much more helpful mm. um, because then you are able to design some asynchronous activities and some synchronous activities, and you don't have to use your class period for synchronous time all the time. Um, and you don't have mm. to think about it in terms of like homework and classwork. Interesting. So it seems like the, um, the GOA design experience has mm -hmm. had an effect uh, on the way you do face-to-face -face classroom teaching. It, is, that, yes. is that true? It is. Um, although it's, it's funny. It's sort of it's sort of like living in different cultures. Um, I you, you kind of adapt to the culture that you're in. But I yeah. but I did try to bring. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's sort of how I think about it. it it's and, and even I would say what we did in the spring was was also new to me in many ways. Although my experiences have my experiences both in the design of my my bishops courses, but also my GOA courses prepared me for that in many ways, but I was still, uh, for example, I've never done class in GOA. We never did like, I'll see you at 1030 on zoom, the whole class. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. it's all synchronous. That was, that was all very new to me. Um, okay. and trying to figure out how to use that time. It, it didn't translate the same way that it might. I was also teaching my GOA course in the spring. Um, and that was just a totally different experience. It was, mostly built up already um and i we would make tweaks each week if we needed to but it was yeah. it was fairly built up it was mostly asynchronous um and the way that i interacted with the students was just a lot different uh pros and cons to to both methods yeah well you know it seems to me it's such an interesting point it seems to me that um um you know one of the things that we uh i think that we pride ourselves on at, at bishops is the ability to, um, to, to some extent, be flexible and adaptive based on where the students are today. For example, mm -hmm. they walk into your class today, something has happened or something's up or, 
you know, you have a bunch of seniors and they just had this event the right. evening before, you know, whatever. And so we can take our, our, our lesson plan and we can modify and we can adapt and we can shift and whatever. Yes. Um, but it strikes me that um, in, a, in, a, in a learning environment where a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that seems to have to be shifted to asynchronous time. Yes. kind of a, a sense of kind of control and navigation. I know um, GOA uses uh, the term wayfinding and, mm-hmm. and agency, right? Has to be shifted over to, to the students. So um, how do you, and so you, you end up with two very different kind of pedagogical cultures. Yes. How, yeah, it, what, it what is. What is your experience of that? <laughs> yes, they, <they're, laughs> they, are, they are different. I'm, I'm trying to, my mind's all over the place with, with ideas. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Kari Woods. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Kari for taking the time to speak with me. I hope you'll join me next week for part two of our conversation on the Innovation Lab.